Well, let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, with all our hearts, we are turning our eyes to Jesus, and yet we feel that our, our vision is clouded and obscured with many other things. There are great cares and responsibilities that fill the sight of our hearts and souls today, and for some it is a financial pressure or a physical weakness or illness. For some it is a, a, the sight of family members or friends who are in difficulty, and we confess that as much as we want to see Jesus as He is and have the vision of our souls filled up with His grace, with His glory, with His power and His work, we are a people whose hearts and vision is divided. I pray that You would grant to us the mercy of undivided attention, that You would give to us an understanding of Jesus in His glory and greatness that would have expulsive power, that would expel all those rivals, every false love, every false form of, of worship or even religious devotion that competes with Jesus. Oh Lord God, just take it away. At the same time, as Your Word commands, we renounce all of those things your word is, to us is lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets you. And by faith we do that. We renounce our sin, ugly as it is, some of it in active rebellion and other sin we've committed just because we are ignorant of who you are and what your will for us is. Have mercy on us and cleanse us and forgive us for all of that sin and set us in a right spirit and right frame of mind, with pure hearts, even pure motives. And Father, we are devoted to things that may be not inherently sinful, but they are the weights that the writer of Hebrews describes, and they keep us from running the race of life as you have intended. And we're too much in love with our stuff. We love our things. We love our experiences. We love thinking about that next vacation we will take or the next job promotion we might experience or big contract we might land. And Lord, this is, this is besetting weight. And I ask that you will give us the faith to follow hard after you. Finally, Lord, I ask for the grace that I need to speak this word uh, just as of as a table waiter would serve a meal. It's your word. It's your spiritual food. And so I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear it, hearts that receive it, wills that are yielded and submitted to it, and uh, that you would accomplish your great work in us today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the world is full of temples and houses of worship. Um, and today's message takes us to Mark 11. We've been working our way through this, so open your Bibles there, please. And in verses 12 through 25, uh, that is our portion for this morning, we're going to see how Jesus does something quite remarkable, and He gives a living parable 
uh, to help his disciples and others understand the significance of what is taking place at the temple and to correct some things and really get to some heart issues. I was thinking even just a few minutes ago that I've had an opportunity through the years, as many of you have, to visit a number of places or sites that uh, communities and groups of people consider to be sacred. And years ago, I was able to travel to China, and we were in kind of the interior section of China and stopped and visited uh, this really quite spectacular temple that had been erected to Buddha. And the approach to this temple was, I think, about a hundred steps stretched out over uh, probably close to a hundred yards. And with each level, uh, you, would, you would rise, and um, we were making our way, the small group that I was with, and I'll never forget seeing an individual uh, who was flat out on his face, arms spread, hadn't even made it all the way to the temple, but was in a posture of worship. And in the temple, which wasn't exceedingly large, uh, but it was, it was beautifully uh, built, constructed, and adorned. Of course, right in the center of that was uh, an, an image of Buddha. And that was the object of that gentleman's worship on that particular day. And of course, as a follower of Jesus, I was, I was thinking other thoughts, like, this is not my God. And I wanted so much to share with that man what I've come to know about Jesus Christ, who is the living God, the creator of all and the redeemer of all. But I was struck by the fact that here's a man who you know, lives on the other side of the world from, from where I live, yet we both know we are created for worship. We both know inherently, just like you know, if you're really honest this morning, there are things and, and forces and powers greater than you. You are not the end all. I am not the end all. Um, and, and in his kindness, Jesus actually gives us truth as to who he is and what he is all about. So the world is full of, of places of worship. And that is a reflection of the fact that we know cross-culturally that there is a God, or we sometimes believe that there are gods. Now, your Bibles are open to Mark 11, and just to briefly get us up to speed, last week we had looked at the first 11 verses. It's, it's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. This is the holy week. It's Passover week for Israel, but it is the week that Jesus has been moving towards since his birth. It's the week where he will be betrayed by Judas. He'll be condemned by the religious rulers in Jerusalem. He'll be sentenced to death after Herod and Pilate work their evil, and then he will be nailed to a cross and crucified. And it looks like a, a catastrophic moment in the life of Jesus Christ, but he's told his disciples three different times now, as Mark has recorded, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, but three days after, I will rise again. And it is in perfect sync with the Father's mission and with his mission that he go to the cross as the savior of sinners like us. So that's what's been taking place. But on the first day as he approaches the temple, look with me at verse 11. It says that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And we noted last week, it seems rather anticlimactic. 
you know, the crowds have been singing, chanting their hosannas, say, which is the Hebrew word for save us now. It seems like they're welcoming their king after the long years of expectation, waiting for Messiah. But we noted last week there's some things that give evidence that they're not looking for God's Messiah or God's king. They're looking for the king of their political dreams and ambitions. They're looking for someone who will deliver them from the oppression of Rome and restore Israel to greatness. And I even use this little phrase, it's as if they were saying, let's make Israel great again. So by the time Jesus enters the temple, it seems that the crowds have dispersed and they've kind of gone on about their business and there he is left alone. Now let's continue reading. In verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. It's a repeated pattern through this Passover week. Now, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It may seem like this fig tree and its withering and the temple scene are unrelated, but they actually are paired together intentionally by, by Christ, more importantly. But Mark includes these two things together uh, in his uh, gospel account. A couple of things here right at the outset as as we begin to look at the facade of fruitlessness. What was Jesus looking for when he came to the fig tree? Because the text tells us that he was hungry. Another reminder that he was fully human. But the text tells us that he finds nothing but leaves. Now, he would have been looking for something that historians and even botanists tell us could be called fig knops, or it's a little variation of the word knob. Listen to what one author writes. After the fig harvest from mid-August to mid-October, the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remain undeveloped through the winter. These buds swell into small green knops known in Hebrew as pagim in March and April. And, and remember, that's, that's when Passover falls. Then, shortly after, the, the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April... The fig tree thus produces these fig knops before it produces leaves. Once a fig tree is in leaf, one therefore expects to find branches loaded with these little pagim in various stages of maturation. And this is what is implied here 
in Mark 11 that Jesus would be looking for, and it would have been commonly known in Israel. So the tree in verse 13, however, turns out to be deceptive, for it is green in foliage, but when Jesus inspects it, he doesn't find any pagim. And apparently, historians tell us it was common for, for those in that day uh, to eat even that immature fruit. It, it was available, and, and I guess they had developed a taste for it, never had one, don't know if they'll have the opportunity, but the point is not that Jesus expects to find something that would never normally be there. He comes to this tree, it's green with foliage, which should be a sign that there's actually something available to nourish his hungry body, and there's nothing. Now this actually becomes a parable for what's taking place at the temple. There's a little picture for you of that, those immature figs that, that Jesus would have been looking for. He found nothing. Now, just note that little phrase and think about it, uh, because that's a little, a little precursor, if you will, as to what really is going on at the temple. And then he curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And did you notice, look at the text with me, at the end of verse 14, Mark records, and his disciples heard it. So it's like, this is what really happened. This isn't legend. Uh, it's also a reminder to us that Jesus is the one whose word is sovereign and supreme. And as creator, he spoke all that is into existence. And when he says, let there be light, there's light. And as one, uh, one brother said long ago, when he says, let there be light, the darkness doesn't stand a chance. And you know when he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? There's not a chance that that tree's going to bear any more fruit. Now all of that is what brings us then to the temple. That's a, that's a scale model. It's much smaller. Like you could walk around that. If you were a younger kid, you'd be standing there going, I need my G.I. Joes. This is an awesome structure. Um, years ago, I, I saw this firsthand a scale model of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, and that's what the temple would have looked like. It was a temple built by Herod. It's not Solomon's temple. It's not Zerubbabel's temple. It's actually Herod's temple. And that outer courtyard surrounding that main structure in the middle is where this uh, next little event seems to unfold. And there's a, you, you can compare the size of Herod's temple there on the right to what Solomon's temple uh, was scaled to on the left. So you can see it's a massive complex. And this is Passover week. So again, the, the, the crowd that is gathering there certainly numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Some even estimate that it would have been over a million people coming to Jerusalem. So that outer court um, around uh, the, the main temple structure in the middle is the court of the Gentiles. There should be room for thousands and thousands of people to gather and do the kind of thing that the Lord intends but verse 15 says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. And the story unfolds from there. Well, in the same way that the fig tree could be described as having a facade of fruitfulness, uh, so we would also uh, note here as we, as we go further into this study, there's actually a facade of religious worship. That word facade is something that I just, I just want you to fix in your heart. There's first of all a facade of consecration. 
There were two things happening in the commerce that are noted here in Mark's gospel that that I want to make sure you understand. First of all, there had to be a a use of approved currency to, to make any purchase in this temple area. You couldn't use the common currency of the day. It actually had to be exchanged, and that's what the tables of the money changers were all about. So in that particular day, where the the circulating currency consisted primarily of Roman money, provision had been made, as historians tell us, uh, for the Jews to pay the annual temple tax after the shekel of the sanctuary. And that was commanded in Exodus 30. It's a different Uh, economy or dispensation that they were operating in. This historian goes on to write, in the first century, all temple dues had to be paid in Tyrian coinage, since the Tyrian shekel was the closest available equivalent to the old Hebrew shekel. And the problem was, over time, the, the, the fee for exchanging that money grew and grew and grew and grew to where it was an exorbitant fee. It exploited the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they were saying in the first place, we have the approved money. We have the approved currency that pleases God. You've got to use this currency. Sorry, your Roman coins are no good in the temple of God. There's the second thing. They also said, we also have the approved sacrifices. You've come to offer lambs, and, and according to God's word, the lambs that should be used, in particular for Passover, were to be without spot or blemish. But they had really tightened up the restrictions, and because there was an opportunity for the Sadducees who controlled the whole commerce and economy of the temple, because there was an opportunity for them to make boatloads of money. The historian Josephus notes that about 30 years after this particular scene, there were over a quarter of a million lambs sacrificed the week of Passover. Well, imagine if you could make a few cents or dollar on every one of those lambs, just because you said to people who had selected what they thought were appropriate, approved lambs out of their own flock and brought them, he said, oh, sorry, you can't use yours, but we'll sell you one of ours. So while it's a, it's a, it's a projected sign of devotion to God and consecration to him, it's actually a facade because it's not driven by concern to be holy in God's sight. It's not driven by a desire to honor Him. It's ultimately about the almighty shekel. So there's a facade of consecration here. And you know, human nature is is the same generation to generation, culture to culture. We all seek ways to come up with approved items or actions that make us feel safe before God, don't we? Let me give you an, ex- an example. Can you see that? Go to Amazon right now and order holy water from the Jordan River. Now, some of you are laughing. So hang on a second, because I'm going to step on your toes in a little bit. I, I use this, though, to illustrate how human nature is to assign spiritual significance to things where God himself hasn't assigned it. And as a matter of fact, the advertisement that goes along with this, holy water, a means of spiritual wealth. Holy water is a sacramental that remits venial sin because of the blessing attached to it. And and this obviously comes from a non-English 
I mean, it's translation. Holy Church strongly urges its use upon her children, especially when dangers threaten, such as firestorm, sickness, discord, and other calamities. Why? Because this water came out of the Jordan River, and that's where Jesus was baptized. Even though none of the water that flowed over him or any of his disciples still flows through the Jordan. We have a simple thing called the water cycle. I suppose there are some water molecules flowing through the Jordan today that were flowing through the Jordan when Jesus was there. But you see how, I mean, we, we want a sense of the sacred. And so we come up with plans and ideas that, that give us some sense of, of spiritual security because we're in the right place or we're using the right things. And it can be anything from clothing and hairstyles that we sometimes elevate to the status of, of spiritual and acceptable or approved to God. It could be music or politics. But as long as we operate within those boundaries of what someone has approved or we have approved, we think we're okay before God. And we set up all kinds of rituals and even designate our own sacred locations of worship that we may feel safe. But what does Jesus think of all this? Any of you ever been to Robber's Roost? South of here. It's famous. Anybody know the history of Robber's Roost? It was an outlaw hideout in southeastern Utah, used mostly by Butch Cassidy and his wild butch gang in the closing years of the Old West. Wikipedia, that source of authority, <laughs> notes that the, and it, has, it certainly has become more uh, authoritative, hasn't it? But just a little brief summary says that this hideout was considered ideal because of the rough terrain. It was easily defended, difficult to navigate into without detection, and excellent when the gang needed a month or longer to rest and lie low following a robbery. It was while hiding out at Robber's Roost that Elsie Lay and Butch Cassidy first formed the Wild Bunch Gang. And this gang, early on led by Cassidy and, and his close friend Elsie Lay, developed contacts inside Utah that gave them easy access to supplies of fresh horses and beef, and most notably the ranch owned by outlaw sisters Ann Bassett and Josie Bassett. Any of you know them? Is that, is that anybody's great-great-grandma? <laughs> I want to be careful, right, how I speak of, of these folks. They constructed gangs inside, or cabins inside robbers' roost to help shield them from the harsh winters, and there they stored weapons, horses, chickens, and cattle. Pursuing lawmen of the day never discovered the site of the hideout. That's basically what Jesus says about the temple at this point. Den of robbers, it's a hideout for thieves. It's a place of extortion and exploitation. Is, is anybody looking at this saying, well, maybe that's one of the things God had in mind when he first instructed David and then Solomon to build a temple. Not at all. But that's what they've turned it into. No, God's intention for this place in, in strong contrast is that it would be a house of prayer. Now think about the word house in comparison to hideout. A house is typically thought of even as a home. It's a place where you find the nightly rest you need after working hard and long through the day. It's the place of nourishment where you store and prepare your food. It's the place you invite your friends and family into that they may share that good food and swap stories and bear their souls in safety and security. 
Home is that place all of us long to be in, to feel and to know the security. And God intended his temple to be a house. But then he says a house of prayer. That's where you communicate with God. Prayer is what true worshipers do as they pour out their hearts to God in faith. It's what we do as we confess our sins. Prayer is how we praise God for who He is and what He has done. It's, it's the means we use to intercede for family and friends, singing the psalms and hymns. I mean, prayer takes many different forms, and Matt's been so skillfully and powerfully leading us through James 5, and then the example of Elijah. God just continues to call our church family to prayer, and I believe that one of the things He's doing here today is to say, are, are you just engaged in some kind of facade of spirituality and worship, or are you really living the life of faith? And then Jesus says, it should be a house of prayer for all the nations. So if you think back to what this, this scene really holds for us, that whole court of the Gentiles that I showed you on the slide, this massive area that was designed to be a place where the nations could come, not just the Jewish people, but the nations of the earth could come, true seekers after God, followers of him, and could pour out their hearts in praise and petition and intercession and confession. It had become like a cattle market, a bazaar, if you will, a farmer's market or a swap meet where nobody was in a spirit of prayer, but it was all about commerce and the big business of religion and a sense of spirituality because the temple's right in the middle and the holy of holies is there and priests were coming in and out but there was no presence of God and like the green leaves of the fig tree the temple worship was deceptive in its appearance and absent from it was the spiritual life the spiritual nourishment the spiritual communion with God that he intended it's a hideout for corruption. It's quite an interesting strategy that the evil one employs, isn't it? That often he makes people feel safe in a religious context, and some, some of us even seek safety in a religious context. We know in our heart of hearts that we're not really where we ought to be in relationship with God, but you know, you come into a place like this and you, you feel safe. And some of you know how to play the game. You know how to talk like a Christian, you know how to dress like a Christian, you know how to sing, you might even lift your hands in worship and try to show everybody I'm, I'm really engaged. And yet, in your heart, you're as empty and malnourished and weak. And you know Jesus loves you enough, just like he loved that culture enough to actually begin to dismantle the cover. We sometimes read this passage as if Jesus is really angry, and, and there is righteous anger that moves through this, but there's also a powerful movement of his mercy because he, he's beginning to work in such a way that he's saying, I'm, I'm going to remove this facade, and I'm going to do it so that you can come to terms with who you really are before God and who God really is so that you might actually experience the power of his forgiveness so that you might experience the power of his redemption. God never intended to save people through places that they might designate as being sacred. Salvation comes only through Jesus the Christ. And some of you may go to places of worship. It could be a temple. It could be a synagogue. It could be a mosque. It could be gospel hope. And you'd like to think that just being in the sacred space accomplishes something for you, but it doesn't. 
it doesn't do any more for you than those Jews and Gentiles who were trying to get into the temple. And that brings us to an all-important question. What are you actually placing your faith in? Faith in a structure? It's not saving faith. Faith in approved religious currency? Doesn't save. Faith in holy water from the Jordan River? Mm, Sorry. And that's where Jesus now carries the conversation and goes back to the fig tree. It's all with a view that he would save us from the facade. So he actually begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought. It makes sense to me that he would drive out those who were selling because they were extortioners. But it actually says he also drove out those who bought in the temple. Well, aren't they just innocent victims? Uh, in, in some respects, yes, but many of them were just going through the ritual. And it wasn't about a relationship with the living God. And so in his kindness, he actually has to expose and clear this facade away. It says he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. You know, worship of the true God is not about approved currency. It's not about kosher sacrifices. And God would not allow them to continue hiding their corruption. And you know, he's not going to allow us to continue hiding. The point is that the temple was always intended to point people to God, specifically to Christ. This would be a whole other message, if not a little mini-series. But the temple from the beginning, if you go back to Exodus 25 and, and read verses 17 to 22, 25 in that range, it's clear that God says, this is my dwelling place among you. And two things he says in Exodus 25, 22 that so bless my heart and encourage me to think that he still intends to do this today. He says, there I will meet with you and I will speak with you. But if you know anything about the temple structure, you know that in the central place was the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies was protected by a thick veil. And it was only the high priest who could, who could go behind that veil. And then it was just once a year on the Day of Atonement. He represented the people with the blood sacrifice prescribed by God. But in that Holy of Holies in Old Testament times was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the ark was not present in the temple in Jesus' day. It had been lost hundreds of years before. But central to that room, as God first designed it, is the ark of the covenant, and the cover of that ark was referred to as the mercy seat. Now, this is beautiful, because if you read through Exodus, you will find God saying, at the mercy seat. And the Hebrew word for, that we translate into the English term mercy seat actually speaks of a sacrifice, uh, a propitiation. That's a New Testament English word that I'll get to in just a moment. But the whole point is God says, there is a, a seat that I describe as the mercy seat. And because of the sacrifice that I have appointed, I will come and meet you. You don't need to fear that I would destroy you because through that blood sacrifice, there is forgiveness. And I bring you into a right relationship with me, though you have sinned. So the temple becomes the place where God dwells. But more than that, it's the place where God meets sinners to restore and reconcile. Now, all of that had been so corrupted and perverted by, by Jesus' day that most of the people coming in and out of there weren't even thinking in those terms. But think about what's happening this particular week. 
Passover. Jesus enters Jerusalem. We looked at last week. He's king, right? But he has a couple of other offices that he fulfills, doesn't he? And one of those is he is the eternal high priest. The priest has arrived at the temple. He's also the sacrifice. He is the lamb of God. God's perfect, spotless, blameless lamb. And by the end of the week, what will he do? He will offer himself in sacrifice. And as he hangs on the cross and completes that work, all of Jerusalem experiences an earthquake. God shakes the city. And as he shakes the city, and the scriptures say that some of the tombs were opened up and dead people came to life again, another spectacular thing happens in the temple. That veil, that massive veil is rent, torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top that, you know, someone might say, well, we did it. No, top to bottom, God did it. And what, does, what is God doing in that moment? Well, he's opening the way into the Holy of Holies. One thing is he's exposing the facade in Jerusalem because there's no ark in it. More than that, there's no God present there. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was accomplishing something much greater symbolized by that veil. It says that he opened a way through the veil of his body so that ordinary people like you and me can actually enter the holy of holies of heaven by faith. That's why we don't have a veil up front here and a special room out back for you know, really spiritual people. It's why you didn't bring lambs to church today. Jesus is everything. And he calls us, and this may seem so simple, we'd we'd almost run by it. But what does Jesus say in verses 20 to 25? First of all, have faith in God. Not the temple. Not some ritual. Not some form of worship. Have faith in God. Now look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. See, in his kindness, he's actually about to bring the temple into a state of ruin. So it, it will not be a facade that leads people away. But then he goes on to say, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Is this like magic formula? I mean, can you pray this stuff and like, like, Lord, I believe the Wasatch Range will move into the salt, to the salt lake. (laughs) Is he giving you that kind of authority? Well, no. He is saying something, though, that is quite astonishing. And we know that. Look at verse 23. The word truly. There's some other English translations that expand that a little bit. It's helpful for us. Um, I grew up reading the King James. This would be the word verily. And sometimes Jesus would repeat that, right? Verily, verily. Truly, truly, I say to you. But this is Jesus looking at his disciples as it were. Parents, you do this sometimes with your little ones, don't you? You like take their face right in your hands and you put your forehead either on their forehead or you get so close that like they're a blur in front of you. Your eyes don't focus in that range, but you're getting their attention and you say to them, listen to me. And this is Jesus' way of saying, listen to me. I'm telling you the truth. And then he opens the door 
to prayer. He's illustrating the power of faith with a little bit of hyperbole. Now, as a little side note, I I found this fascinating. Listen to what this historian writes. The symbol of a mountain may have been suggested by the horizon to the south of Jerusalem that is dominated by a peak in the shape of a volcano. It comes into view as one reaches the crest of the Mount of Olives, which is where this likely took place. This peak is actually the fortress of Herodion, one of many citadels built by Herod the Great for refuge in case of war or rebellion. Herod had literally removed an adjacent hill, the base of which is still visible today, in order to surround the citadel of Herodian with a rounded earthwork. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that that's what Jesus was looking at and making illustration of, but it sure fits the time frame. And if we ever do a a church trip over to Jerusalem, I'm sure we'll stand on the Mount of Olives and look south, and one of you will say, hey, Danny, remember our study in Mark? And didn't you say it? Is that the place? And we'll all go, that's it. So what Herod could do just by, by human authority and because he had manpower available to say, you know what, that pile of dirt, I want you to move it over there and, and you know, fortress my citadel. Jesus is saying, if you say what seems to be impossible because your faith is in God, not in your relics, not in your sacred structures, but because your faith is in God, what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So let me tie this in. We just sang a song a little bit ago, By Faith. Did you catch that one line? By faith, this mountain shall be moved and the gospel shall prevail. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. And you know, in this valley, there are mountains that need to be moved. In some of your families, there are mountains that need to be moved. And you look, the, you look at the massive resistance to the gospel in the heart of your spouse or your child or your parent or your neighbor or whole communities. And you say to yourself, God, how will they ever believe? His answer is right here. Believe in God. Pray in faith. Don't doubt. Don't, don't give room for doubt. And every day, the life of faith is a war. Am I going to believe what these eyes See and tell me, or am I going to believe what God shows me in his word? And that's what's underneath and behind our prayers. It's not about you and me learning to pray powerful prayers. It's about you and me believing the powerful word of God and starting to pray in response to it. We had a great prayer time Thursday night. I wish all of you could have been here. We'll do it again in in another week and a half on a Thursday night. Please come, because... This is why we're praying, and these are the kinds of things we're praying for. And when you and I sing, by faith this mountain shall be moved, we're actually doing the very thing that Jesus commanded here. Let me wrap this up as we think it through. How do we respond to the word of God? Because God never gives us his word just for us to go, hmm, that's interesting, and then move on from life. He gives us his word that we might obey it, Believe it, yield to it, enact it. There are all kinds of legitimate responses, but I want you to think, first of all, and ask God, are there any facades that I'm hiding beneath? Any forms of worship that, if you were honest, you would say, you know what, I actually put more faith in that than I do in God himself. Well, you need to renounce it. I think gospel hope is a special place, but just occupying a seat here once or even a couple times a week as, as our you know, calendar sometimes affords, that that doesn't in and of itself put you in relationship to God. I hope gospel hope is not a facade. I hope that you're not hiding corruption underneath this 
temple or cloak of spirituality. I may not recognize that. No one else may know it. God sees it as it is. And you know, in God's kindness, for some of you, he, he's actually going to pronounce a word that withers your facade. And he's not going to allow you to hide forever. So it's actually to your advantage and blessing that you just renounce it and say, God in heaven, I'm sorry. I've taken something good and turned it into a den of robbers. I'm the robber. So renounce every facade of spirituality. This seems simple enough, but live every day by faith in God. And not just any God, the God of the Bible, the God who created you and gave you life, the God who sent his son into the world to be your substitute sacrifice and pay your sin, the God who raised Jesus miraculously from the dead, the God who has seated him in that position of authority, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. We were singing earlier, Jesus saves. You can't save yourself. I can't save you. Only Jesus saves. It's by faith in him. And then number three, it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But pray in faith. We're asking God for big things. Not just today, not just Thursday night. I mean, daily. And even when we don't gather as a group, we need to be praying individually. We have a great God, and he does powerful things. And he just authorized us to say, God, in our little weak, struggling faith, but our faith that's all in you, we're asking you to move mountains. Look at the text again. Jesus says in verse 24, it will be yours. So I'm not, you know, I don't even want to stoop to the level of saying, God, could you, I've told you this before, this is just uncanny to me. Seth and I came over early, first thing this morning, Kristen calls about nine o'clock and says, guess what? The other car she was going to drive, it's not starting. What? That's like our, our newest, best car. I just got some other car things worked out and now this. I'd like to say, you know, Lord, I believe in faith that when I get home, that car will start because you said <laughs> whatever you believe that you have received, it will be yours. So I believe, you know what? Not just I'm going to have a fixed car. I believe there's going to be a brand new something or other in my driveway. <laughs> is that what Jesus is authorizing us to do? No. Because you know, 100 years from now, the kind of car I'm driving today won't matter. But 100 years from now, there are a whole bunch of people living and working and going to school with us and buying groceries next to us right in this valley who may actually be lost in hell. Oh, why would I even waste time praying over a little molehill of a car issue when there are mountains to be moved? So this is big praying. It's strategic praying. It's eternally focused, kingdom-minded praying. Renounce the facades. Live by faith in this God. And as an expression of your faith, pray, pray, pray. Now let's bow our heads and let's respond in faith to the word. What's the first thing that comes to your mind right now is the spirit of God is speaking to you. What, how do you need to respond to this? Will you do it? Maybe it's the renouncing of a spiritual facade that you've constructed humbly acknowledging to this Christ who knows you perfectly, but saying, you know what? I'm a robber living in a hideout, just trying to keep my corruption covered. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Call on him. He will. 
someone else says, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, that he's done everything that he says he has done. He will do everything he will do, but I'm not really living by faith in him. I'm living by my own wits. Even this Christian life, I'm just, I'm doing it in my own strength. Well, this is a day for you to lay aside that weight. Look to Jesus. And some of you say, I, I'm, by God's grace, I'm not living in a spiritual facade of any kind, and I, I do think I'm living by faith, but the specific point of application for you is you, you need to join the prayer army that Jesus leads right now. And you need to spend time in the coming week praying less about those temporary struggles and frustrations. You, you need to actually start praying for mountains to be moved. You need to pray that the gospel will, in fact, prevail. Our God and Father, thank you for causing our facades of spirituality to wither. Thank you for removing those covers of our corruption, our hideouts, our dens. Thank you for bringing us to a place where we recognize that you are the God who gives us a house. And it's not a physical structure, but you call us into your own household saying, I am who I am. I will do what I will do. Believe in me. Would you so stir our church family? You've been doing that, but just continue to stir our hearts. Don't let us rest until we are fully committed to living by faith and to praying in the way that you want us to. And God, we, we confess right now that our faith is weak in many ways. It is, it's divided, and we would love to say that we believe without any doubting, but we know it's a battle. We fight back those doubts and fears and our skepticism and all those kinds of things, but We've been praying for big things. We're going to keep doing it. I ask that you would show us what it means that you are the God who moves mountains in response to the prayers of ordinary people like us. Please, for your glory, for our joy, for the rescue of thousands and millions around the world today. Oh, God in heaven, establish your true house of prayer for all the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.